Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. So we're... So we're in a worship series uh, the last several weeks and a couple more Sundays called The One of God's Own Choosing. It's a phrase we've stolen from the song we'll sing at the end of the night. And we're reading in the Gospel of Mark, these early chapters, just all the stories to build layer by layer this portrait of Jesus, what he says, what he does, what he suffers, which basically means all that happens to him. And tonight's theme Jesus can't go home again. We're actually picking up right where we left off last week. The last line of the reading last week from chapter 3 of Mark in verse 19 was, then he went home. Like he had appointed these, these apostles, he sent them out to help do, you know, not just crowd control, but actual ministry, and then he went home. <laughs> and so now we pick up in verse 20 with him at home. I'll just start at the very end of verse 19. Then he went home, and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, he's gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, oh, he has Beelzebul. And by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. So he called them to him, and he spoke to them in parables. And he said, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. So if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then, indeed, his house can be plundered. And truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his siblings came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting all around him, and the crowd said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside. They're asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my siblings? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my siblings. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, my mother. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Here's what I would love. I would love to get Jesus and Brittany in a room together. Don't Brittany who me. You know the Brittany I mean. And she says, family ties? More like tie me up in conservatorship for the rest of my life. Am I right? 
He says, girl, same. She says, they say I'm crazy, too crazy to know my business, have to settle down and do what they say. He says, preach it, sister. Brittany says, they tell everybody I can't be trusted, that I don't know my own reality, that I need their guidance, that they're my family and they know best and they're taking me home. Well, I'm telling you, family is bullshit. And Jesus says, don't I know it? Let me tell you how it went down for me. What had happened was Jesus was getting famous, real famous, in a way that some people loved and some people really hated. His fans adored him. They left home and followed him around. They coagulated into crowds that were probably kind of dangerous for him and for each other. Mark says, then he went home and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. Now, we're not exactly sure what home means here. I mean, whether Jesus was married or unmarried, he'd have probably lived with his family of origin or at least considered their house to be his home base. Private home ownership where adult kids move out and live apart from their parents is a very recent, very Western idea. But if he went home to his foo, family of origin, why would Mark then say when his family heard that he was home, they went out to restrain him? It seems more likely that going home for Jesus meant something more like returning to the region or even the town he was from. And earlier in Mark's gospel, in chapter 2, Capernaum, a little town on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, had been named as his home. So, he's back on familiar and familial territory, back where everybody knows his name, but not necessarily at his family of origin's house. But listen, as soon as his foo figures out that he's home, they come running to stage an intervention because they've heard about the life that he's living out there, how he believes that God has created and called him for something beautiful that they don't understand, and how he won't be quiet about it, how he has come out, essentially, in a big way, declaring that God's love is the realest thing in the world, that love is love, that what God wants for every human being on the planet is health and wholeness and relationships that affirm their health and wholeness. And if that doesn't earn you a crazy badge in your super religious family of origin, I don't know what will. They came out to restrain him, Mark says. And I'm not entirely sure what that looked like in the first century CE. What is the ancient equivalent of involuntary commitment or conservatorship or conversion therapy? Though, to be fair, his family's assessment that he is the way he is because he's suffering from a mental illness is a gracious appraisal compared to the one their religious kinfolk are about to drop. Scribes from Jerusalem are coming. Scribes are one particular strain of those VRPs, the very religious persons that Jesus is always pissing off just by being Jesus. And they have traveled, honest to God, 
80 miles or so from their hometown to his to give their completely uninvited opinion, like Westboro Baptist protesters at a soldier's funeral, uninvited, very noisy. The scribes said he was more than sick. They said he was evil. Look at him casting out demons, they said. Look at him standing up against the powers that bind people. Nobody can stand against the powers and principalities that way unless, unless they have some power over the powers and principalities. He must be. He must be. Beelzebul himself, the Lord of the Flies. That's what Beelzebul means, Lord of the Flies. And okay, with that one, they might have gone a little too far. And this accusation was overblown. Yeah, it never really caught on. The crowds who were finding themselves free of all manner of impediments to have, living their best lives now figured that if Jesus was evil incarnate, they probably would have been able to sniff that out for themselves. It just didn't stick. Even Jesus is kind of kind of shocked by that one. Seriously, guys, he says, seriously? You're calling me Satan, he says? I mean, for one, that makes absolutely no sense. Why would I cast myself out? But for two, really, you want to be careful, you VRPs, that you don't let yourself miss the work of God in this world. You, you see people getting healed and helped, people getting their lives and families back, people returning to worship and work and joy and wellness, people becoming more and more the persons that God has imagined them to be, and you say that that's the devil's work? Ah, ah, ah. That's a kind of blasphemy you don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole, boys. God is a merciful God for sure. But even God has God's limits. Trust me on this one. Beloveds, listen. We're just like five minutes in, and if... If you're sitting here trying to just keep it together because your head and your heart are full of all the feelings and all the memories of feelings that this text raises in you, I want you to hear me. You are not alone. From the family of origin that thinks you're crazy and hard to handle, to the religious authorities who say you're wrong-headed, unchristian, heretical at best, truly evil, at worst, so many people in this service tonight have dealt with those very same assessments of their personhood, their identity, their God-given selving. So many of you, of us, have found that the more of ourselves we express, the more public and unashamed we become, the more our families of origin are embarrassed by us and try to rein us in. And the more our religious kin point their fingers at us and try to kick us out. And Jesus says to you, Jesus says to all of us, girl, same. Preach on, sister. Don't I know it? Which is, at least in part, the gospel for us tonight. It's the very good news that Jesus not only brings to us, but 
embodies for us, experiences alongside us. Me too, Jesus says, which is sometimes the kindest thing anyone can say. Your suffering is real. Your heartache is legit. You are not alone. Me too. But that all by itself would not be quite enough, would it? I mean, we, have, we who have experienced the rejection or at least the suspicion of our families of origin, we who have endured judgment by our religious kin, find Jesus' solidarity in that comforting, but not quite sufficient. We who must die demand a miracle, said Auden, the poet. I'm saying something similar. We who have sacrificed all kinds of relationships in order to fulfill our life's purpose, to become who God made us to be, demand a family. No one is an island, said another poet, Dunn. The poets are so often right. I got you, says the spirit of the living Christ among us, which is the Holy Spirit. Don't make that dangerous mistake. And so she has Mark tell us another story. It's either another time or the continuation of that one time that his family came looking for him, wanting to rein him in. The crowd, Mark says, is still huge. Some disciples have been assigned as bouncers, designated assholes, to keep everybody under control. And they say, hey, Jesus, we're really sorry to interrupt, but we just feel like you ought to know that your mom and your sibs are outside. They really want to talk to you. Do you want to, you know, let them cut in line? Jesus just looks around. He looks around at all the sad souls who have crowded around him, clamoring for some compassion, hopeful for some healing, longing for someone to see how lost and lonely they are, yearning for a yes from this one who speaks for God, a yes from God's own heart, when everyone else has told them, no, 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 not you, not like that, for such a long damn time. All those spiritual refugees, all those daughters and sons and kids who cannot go home again. He just looks around at, at all of us. And Jesus, who has little use for whispering, he says right out loud, nah, my whole family is right here. All my kin, all my beloveds, everyone who is looking for God's purpose, leaning into God's imagining, risking everything to get more of what God wants, this is my family. Whoever's asking for me outside, just tell them that's what I said. I got to tell you, as a mom, his words cut me. My whole body bears the marks of bearing children. My whole life bears the imprint of their raising. I cannot imagine the hurt to his mother's heart on hearing those words. But as a mom, as a parent, 
I take his words and his experience very seriously because it turns out Jesus is heartily disinterested in parental expectations for what makes a kid a good kid. See, that's what this whole controversy is about, right? That his family has certain expectations of him. And when his life his behavior, his very identity don't conform to those expectations. Well, they decide he must be sick, somehow deficient in their definition of normalcy. Be like us or be diagnosed, they say. Same for his religion. When he does not conform to their expectations of what makes a good believer, they label him as outside of God's will, God's acceptance, indeed even opposed to God's will in this world. Be like us or be unrighteous, unclean, unaccepted, they say. This is a very human tendency, this kind of tribalism, where conformity is prized and difference is punished. I don't know if you're aware, but today is Independence Day. It is the 4th of July. And there is an expectation of patriotic appreciation from we who are citizens of the U.S. American Empire. But listen, listen. What if your brand of patriotism, though, means owning up to the fatal flaws in our system? What if you use the privilege of your citizenship to point out the lie of liberty and justice for all, given that we incarcerate at a higher rate than any other developed nation in the world, and we do that at a rate many times higher for black and brown bodies than for white bodies? What if you cherish the words of another poet, Emma Lazarus, writing about our welcome of immigrants and refugees? and thus grieve our cruelty to those seeking asylum and honest work and family reunions on our shores? What if you kneel during the national anthem or declare yourself a pacifist non-combatant in our wars or protest policies that protect wealth and whiteness while diminishing the humanity of women and people of color and LGBTQ humans and low-wage workers and so on? What if you don't say the Pledge of Allegiance because Christians pledge our allegiance to the singular reign of God in direct opposition to the U.S. American capitalistic empire? What if you believe the tenets of critical race theory in your bones because you have read our country's founding documents and know for a fact that racism and white supremacy were baked into our national origin story and are still operative now and cannot be excised without a fundamental reworking of our democracy, a nationwide confession and repentance and reparation and exorcism, if you will, of that particular demon? What if Green Day's American Idiot is your 4th of July anthem? They will say you're crazy. They will say that you should settle down and get yourself together. They will say that you're wrong and dangerous and maybe even evil. And they will warn other people not to listen to you and they will call you out they will uninvite you to the family cookout. They will make you feel like you are the only one 
a voice crying in the wilderness, alone and unprotected, unloved and unwanted, unless and until you can change into the person they expected you to be, needed you to be all along. Jesus says to that, bull hockey. Because the only expectation that matters now has already been declared, has already been achieved. God said it to him at his baptism. God said it to all of us too. This is my child, my beloved, whom I love, with whom I am already so pleased. Jesus knows that we're going to spend the rest of our lives trying to grow into God's assessment of our beauty and strength because he did it too. He spent the entirety of his ministry living up to God's insistence that he was already good, already worth loving, already God's very own child. And Jesus also knows that it's quite impossible to do that by oneself. If your food thinks you're crazy, and your religion thinks you're wrong, and your neighbors think you're unpatriotic, well, you're going to have to find some people to stand with, a little crowd to get crowded with, some kindred spirits to be your kin. So he's got some advice for us tonight. He says, look around. Everybody you need is already here. There are some fierce mama bears and some brothers from another mother and some sisters from another mister and some sibs from another rib. I made that one up. And if you stick with them, you'll never, never walk alone. In the book that Susan and I published recently, Family of Origin, Family of Choice, there are a dozen or so stories by people whose relationships with their families of origin were threatened by their own queer identity or that of somebody they love. And it, it just feels to us like a kindness to put those stories out into the world, like an offer of solidarity to readers who might feel like they are the only one. One person who did not want to talk to us for the book, her name is Nev, was in the house when her spouse Kira was being interviewed, sort of just listening and hearing her own story unfold in the words of her wife. And near the very end of the conversation when Susan was closing up the laptop and about to turn off the tape recorder, Nev asked if she could say something. And this is what she said. What I did for myself before I started coming out is just sort of realize that I was going to make it, that I was going to get to transition. And that thought gave me so much peace of mind. And I was going to be good with whatever happened next because transition was always at the other end. That's all I really needed to know the whole time. And, and there's a wealth of people waiting for you in this life you're scared to live. It's 
See, that right there is the whole gospel. There's a wealth of people waiting for you in this life you're scared to live. And Jesus says, preach on, sister. I could not have said it better myself. Amen. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.